morning, we ought to thank God for his word and for the blessing of having a Bible. John talked about the efforts that the elders are making to make sure that we are able to get into the word of God in a more consistent basis, at least as far as our Bible class goes on Sunday morning. And we ought to be grateful for that. Our own personal devotion and Bible study. There is one more opportunity that I want to bring to your attention this morning, and especially if you have small children, grandchildren. Every Sunday night before evening worship at 545, we have pew packers where the young people come and sit up front and learn Bible facts and sing some songs. We sometimes have some not so young people participate and you're welcome to do that as well. But we are blessed to be able to live in a place where we can freely study the word of God and let us do everything we can to take advantage of all of those opportunities afforded to us. Many people have made notice of the fact that Jesus's life didn't begin in Bethlehem. Jesus had always existed with God in heaven. He's the eternal God. John one and verse one. Others have made mention of the fact, especially around this time of the year, that Jesus came to the world and was born in Bethlehem and spent over three decades involved in his earthly ministry. Galatians four and verse four says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law that he might redeem those that were under the law. And many others have still made mention of the fact that Jesus came, he died, he was buried, and he rose again the third day. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, that those facts, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, are the things of first importance. It's the heart of the gospel. And yet, maybe we haven't spent as much time talking about what Jesus is doing right now at this present moment. Jesus' work didn't end at Calvary, but it began there. And maybe as Christians, as you hear this, what Jesus is doing today, thinking about the heavenly ministry of Jesus, our immediate response to that may be, well, Jesus's work is already done. Jesus prayed. You remember in John 17 and verse four, before he went back to the father, he said, Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. And right before he breathed his last and gave his spirit up to God in John 19 and verse 30, he said, it is finished. But those statements and others like them that we find throughout the Gospels do not mean that Jesus entire ministry is over. It just meant that his earthly ministry that God had given him to accomplish on earth as a human being had ended. But Jesus is still working. His heavenly ministry continues to this present moment. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter one. The book of Hebrews really deals with the ministry and work of Jesus. And the author makes two points about Jesus throughout the 13 chapters. He talks about the things that Jesus has done. And then he talks about the things that Jesus is still doing and emphasis on Jesus's continued ministry and how Jesus serves us. It's a word of exhortation. Hebrews 13 and verse 22. And throughout these 13 chapters, he goes back and forth between these two ideas. Here's what Jesus has done. But a Appreciate what Jesus is still doing for you in the present moment. There are two kinds of people that need to hear a sermon like this one. The first group are those of us who are Christians, faithful or unfaithful. We need to hear this reality that Jesus is still working, even though we can't see him and he's in heaven. Faithful Christians need to hear it so that they might be encouraged to stick with it. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. And unfaithful Christians need to hear this so that they might appreciate Jesus is watching. Beware. Come home. Non-Christians need to hear a sermon like this one so that they might appreciate that the Jesus that came to this earth and died for them is still observing their actions and watching and waiting for them to turn to him and to respond. Would you notice with me this morning seven things that Jesus is still doing right now in the lives of his people, the way Jesus is still serving in his heavenly ministry? The first one, number one, Hebrews chapter one. 
Jesus at this present moment is sitting at the right hand of God. Notice it in Hebrews chapter one and verse three. It says he's the brightness and radiance of the glory of God exact imprint of his nature. He upholds everything by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God and the majesty on high. You know, when Jesus ascended at the Mount of Olives in Acts chapter one, nine through 11, after spending 40 days with his disciples, his ministry didn't end. He didn't go up and park halfway up on a cloud. He went all the way back to glory. And the Hebrew writer says he is seated at the right hand of God and he's there on our behalf. Now, God doesn't literally have a right hand. This is sort of figurative language to express the reality that Jesus is as close to God as anyone could ever be throughout the Bible. This idea of the right hand is a special place of significance. The right hand is where the patriarchal blessing was administered. Genesis 48, 17 through 20. When people wanted to make a solemn oath, 62 and verse 8, Revelation 10, 5 through 7, it would say he swore and raised his right hand. It's a place of prestige. First Kings chapter two and verse 19. When John saw Jesus in the heavenly revelation, he fell down as though dead. And Revelation 117 says Jesus reached down and administered comfort by placing his right hand on John. When the Hebrew writer begins this book by saying Jesus is at the right hand of God, this is more than obscure reference and a footnote. He's saying Jesus is in a privileged and exalted position. But more than that, he's there for our benefit. He's seated at the very right hand of God. Right this moment, that's where Jesus is, close enough to intercede, close enough to hear our prayers and to see everything we're doing. He's in an exalted and blessed position. The New Testament makes mention of this over and over again about the fact that this is where Jesus is located so that we won't miss it. To say that though Jesus died and rose and is in heaven, his work is not over. He sits at the right hand of God, still serving and still administering his kingship. From the very throne of God. When Peter preached in Acts chapter five and verse thirty one, he says he's exalted at the right hand of God as a prince and a savior, giving repentance and the remission of sins. Colossians three and verse one says, if you've been raised with Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God. Romans eight and verse thirty four says he is there on our behalf. And Peter says in first Peter three and verse twenty two, he's exalted to the right hand of God. And when he got there, there were angels, authorities and powers made subject to him. What is Jesus doing right this moment? He's seated at God's right hand. Now, I'm going to talk to the kids because they may understand this. Maybe the parents don't. You've played musical chairs before, right? And you know how the game musical chairs goes. You walk around those chairs very slowly if you want to win, by the way. And then when the music stops, you sit down and you try to find a seat And every round of musical chairs. There are fewer and fewer chairs present for people to sit in until finally there's one champion crown. But in heaven, there is no heavenly musical chairs. Jesus is only and always going to be at the right hand of God. Nobody can occupy that seat because it's reserved for him and him alone. Jesus is distinct from the father, and yet he reigns co-equal with him. Matthew 28, 18, he says, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. When the Bible says he's seated at the right hand of God, this is God's way of saying, I always keep my promises. He promised David, Psalm 110 and verse 4. This verse is the most often quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at his right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is right where God promised he would be. He's seated at the right hand of God for you and for me to serve on our behalf. Now, here's number two. What is Jesus doing right now? He's worshiping with us. Jesus is in heaven, but he's very concerned about everything that's taking place on earth, especially things that relate to his people. 
In Hebrews chapter 2, there's one argument the writer is making, and that is that Jesus identifies with us as a human being. Listen, Jesus was always God, always has existed, came to earth and became a human being. But there's more than that. The Hebrew writer says he will forever be a human being. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, that identification with us does not cease now that he's back in heaven. He has chosen to forever identify with us. And so he proves his case. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. He says, Jesus identifies with us by becoming a human being. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, he identifies with us in our suffering. And the text says he tasted death for every man. He's not ashamed of that identification. Hebrews 2 and verse 11 says he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. And then in one of the most shocking verses in all of Revelation, the Hebrew writer dips back into Psalm 22 and verse 22, words initially on the lips of David, but now attributed to Christ. Notice what the text says. This is Jesus speaking. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the church or the congregation. I will sing your praise. Now, here's the question. When will he do that? Jesus sang with his disciples when he was on earth. Matthew 26 and verse 30, they went out to the Mount of Olives and sung a hymn. But notice the text says, in the midst of the ecclesia, in the midst of the church, he'll sing praise. Jesus is present with us. What is he doing right now? Worshiping with his people. He does this as he joins in with us in song. He told his disciples, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. He ate it with them in the Passover, but he said, take this bread and eat it. It's my body. Take this cup and drink it. It represents my blood. But then in Matthew 26, 29, he said, I will not drink this again, this fruit of the vine, until that day I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. And then in Acts chapter 2, when the spirit rushes in and the disciples break bread, Acts 2 and verse 42, and partake of the Lord's Supper, Jesus is there and was there. And when we take the Lord's Supper, he's here as well. When we sing praises, he sings too. The Old Testament told us that God sings. Zephaniah 317, it says he will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with shouts of joy. Your God will joy over you with singing. And now in the New Testament, we read God, the son, he sings over us as well, sings with us. This is both comforting and corrective. If Jesus is singing in worship, it says two things about him. Jesus is present and Jesus is a participant. But it's corrective for us because it means if Jesus, the son of God, is singing, you and I better be singing, too. If Jesus opens his mouth and sings praises, the ones that the angels worship when he came into the world and said, glory to God in the highest, the one that received worship, if he sings with us, we had better be singing as well. The words of David should be true of us. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praise to the Lord. Psalm 27 and verse 6. But more than that, these words are comforting. Identify with us in every way, even in our worship. He will never ask you to do anything that he's not willing to do himself, even all the way up to this point. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11. Those that are sanctified and the one doing the sanctified are all of one source. We all are in this same relationship with Jesus. He identifies with us. And the Hebrew writer's proof of that is he's engaged and involved in your worship. God cares about what we offer up in worship so much so that Jesus is willing to join in with us and worship. It staggers the mind that the one that all the angels fall down and worship says, I'm going to sing along with my brethren. God is worshiping with us. Christ is present in our worship. And so we should both be present and we should be participants. What is Jesus doing right now? He's worshiping with his people. As Phil mentioned before we began worship service, singing is one of those avenues of worship, one of those acts of worship that will continue throughout all eternity. And when we get to heaven, 
the chorus will merely continue that it started on earth and God the Son is going to join in with us. And we should praise God for that great reality. In the United States, in Canada, in Nepal, in India, and in South Korea, every passenger window on a car has to have these words engraved on it. You have it on your car. Objects in this mirror are closer than they what? Closer than they appear. Everybody has to have it. And every Christian needs to have that phrase engraved on his or her heart, especially as it relates to worship. God, that the God that I read about in this book, he's close. He's near. He's present, especially when I worship him. How is this going to change my singing? If I really believe that Jesus is singing with me, how will this encourage my heart? The Hebrew writer says, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the church. I'll sing your praise. Here's number three. What is Jesus doing right now? He's serving as our high priest. Hebrews chapter three and verse one, the Hebrew writer invites his audience in on this. He says, therefore, holy brothers and participants in the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. In the old covenant, the high priest came from the lineage of Aaron. You had to be from the tribe of Levi in order to serve as a high priest under that old covenant. But Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Hebrews 7 and verse 14 says, if he were on earth, he could never serve as a high priest. But now in heaven, he can serve as our heavenly high priest. What do high priests do? They offer up sacrifices on behalf of the people. Jesus serves as a high priest because God exalted him to that position. He's the only one that could. Psalm 110 and verse 4 says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The priesthood that is his is enjoyed because God put him in that position. Priests have to be able to relate both to God and those individuals whom they serve. And Jesus qualifies. Hebrews 5, 4 through 5 says he is able to relate because he can bear with our infirmities and he knows what it's like to be a human being. But Hebrews 7 says that Jesus is in this position because he represents us to the father. One day a year, the high priest would go into the holies of holies. On the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16 lays this out in detailed fashion, and he would offer up several sacrifices, first for his own sins, because he was a man with weakness and with sin himself, and then for the sins of the people. And he would confess all the sins of the nation that had taken place throughout that year on the head of that animal before he slayed him and offered up the sacrifice. But Jesus had no sins for which to offer up for himself. Jesus serves as the heavenly high priest for us at this very moment, not for his benefit, but for ours. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one of a kind son, his one unique son for us, that everyone that believes in him might not perish but enjoy everlasting life. Jesus serves two functions as he enters the holies of holies. Jesus is the one that presents the sacrifice to God. But when you look down at the sacrifice being offered, he's also the one that is offered up as the sacrifice. John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he's in heaven at this very moment serving as our high priest. Now, practically, what does that mean? That's deep theological terminology. Somebody says, well, I've never lived under a covenant with priests. And so what does that have to do with the way that I live my life? It has a ton to do. Notice what the Hebrew writer says throughout this book about the benefits that are ours because Jesus serves as a high priest. Number one, look at Hebrews chapter four. Hebrews chapter four. He's going to make these points that you've heard all your life. But the basis on which he makes these points is it's because Jesus is your high priest. Look at Hebrews four and verse 14. He says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession without wavering. Look at verse 15. We do not have a high priest who can't be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but one who is tempted at all points like we are yet without sin. The Hebrew writer says 
Jesus as your high priest, he knows what you're experiencing. He knows what it's like. But what else? Verse 16, because Jesus is your high priest who's seated at the right hand of God, you can come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's one of the benefits of having Jesus as a high priest. As our high priest, he's the forerunner on our way to heaven. Hebrews 6, 18 through 20 says that by two immutable things, it's impossible for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation who fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope set before us. And Jesus, as our high priest, bursts into the heavenly realm on our behalf as a forerunner, and he leaves the door open for us to come in behind him because he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 7.24 says he is our high priest, and he's our high priest forever. And based on that reality, our consciences are clean, and our bodies are washed with pure water, Hebrews 10.21 through 22. Jesus as our high priest It includes benefits we can't imagine. Listen, Jesus didn't die just so that our sins can be forgiven. He died and serves as high priest so that our sins can be forgotten. Hebrews 8 and verse 12, God says, I'll be merciful to your unrighteousness and your sins and your iniquities. I will remember no more. And if that wasn't enough, he mentions it again in chapter 10 and verse 17 to say, Jesus is standing in the presence of God with his blood as the sacrifice for our sins. And when you feel guilty about that, you say, well, I confess. I don't know if God's going to forgive me. I prayed about this, but I keep struggling. He's our high priest. He serves in heaven on our behalf. He knows what it's like to be a human being. You can pray to God and you don't have to worry. I wonder if God's going to hear me. You can come boldly because Jesus represents us before God. What is Jesus doing right now? He's serving as your high priest and as mine. Here's number four. Jesus at this present moment, his heavenly ministry involves... In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, it says the word of God. Sometimes people say, is this Jesus or is this about the Bible? The answer is yes. It's about both. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, notice verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. Everything is naked and open before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. What is Jesus doing right now? The truth is, he's looking at you and he's looking at me. When we stand before God in the judgment, the Bible says everything we've ever done. We're going to give an account for it. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. But listen, when we stand before God in the judgment, nobody's going to have to brief Jesus on what we've done. You won't have to tell Jesus, well, I had these opportunities and I've done this or I missed this opportunity and I did that or I didn't mean to do that. He already knows. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, Proverbs 15:3. His eyes roam to and fro throughout the whole earth, 2 Chronicles 16 and verse 9. His eyes are over all that live, that he might give to everyone according to their deeds and the fruit of their doings, Jeremiah 32 and verse 19. Jesus sees everything we're doing. And one of the things that he's doing right now in this present moment is he is observing the ways of humanity. Everything's naked and open and exposed. He knows who we are, what we are, and what we're engaged in. You know, a lot of people think you behave better when people are watching you. I mean, how good are the brakes on your car? Do you normally find out right before you get to a speed trap? Right. You find out, wait, hey, I'm driving pretty good. And then once I see a police officer, most people, the CDC did a literature review and they found out that cameras and stoplights and speed traps help people to drive better. When we realize that somebody is observing us, when we realize that there are other people that are watching us, we tend to behave better. The Bible says Jesus is always watching the way that we behave. He's observing us and nothing escapes his notice. 
everything's naked and open and laid bare before the one to whom we must give an account. That is, one day we will give an account, but he'll already know what we've done. Every idle word we've spoken, Matthew 12, 36 and 37, it's open. And right now he's watching us. He's seeing the way that we live and the way that we behave and we won't fool him. It's not as if Jesus is so occupied in heaven that he's disinterested in what's going on in earth. It's as if Jesus is stooped over at the present, observing everything that everybody in the world is doing. And one day he's going to remind us of everything that we've done and how we responded to him. Have you ever pocket dialed somebody before? What do you think about when you do that? You pocket dial somebody, you pull out your phone, you realize you called somebody and you didn't mean to. The first thing you sometimes think are really two things, right? How long did that last and what did they hear? In 2014, the United States Court of Appeals, the Sixth Circuit, they rendered a decision that said, listen, if you pocket dial somebody, whatever you say at that moment is free and open reign. You've surrendered all acts of privacy because in the end, you're the one that called them. You started the conversation and whatever you say can and will be used against you in criminal law or in any case because you're the one that made the call. Jesus does not need your permission, though, to listen in on your conversations or mine. He already knows. He already hears us. And, you know, if you're a faithful Christian, this is great news. It says Jesus sees you. Don't get discouraged. You may be overlooked and misunderstood by the world, but it says Jesus sees you. Stick with it. Everything's open and naked. He knows your motives. He knows you're doing the very best that you can. Persevere and press on. But for those that may be steeped in unrighteousness, even in secret, Doing things and you say, I hope nobody ever finds out about this. I do this with my phone and I'm saying this sort of thing and I hope nobody ever sees this. Oh, it's too late. The New Testament says the jig is up. Jesus already sees and he already knows. Jesus is open and he's observing the way that we behave. The Hebrew writer says right now in this present moment, Jesus is watching the way that we live and he's observing us. If you're struggling If you feel all alone and abandoned, the Bible says Jesus sees you. You're not alone. Jesus cares about you. And he is watching the way that we carry ourselves. Here's number five. What is Jesus doing right now? He's saving souls. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, Luke 19 and verse 10. But he didn't stop doing that when he went back to heaven. Jesus is involved in the saving of men and women's souls right now at the present. Hebrews 5 and verse 8 says, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things he suffered and being made perfect. He became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Right now, Jesus is involved in saving people. When he came into the world, this is what they said. One of the names that Mary was to give to Jesus, there were several, but one of them, Matthew 1, 23, you'll call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted means God with us. God's with us, but God, he also is Jesus. And that name means Jesus saves. He's a savior and he's saving people at the present moment. There could be no salvation outside of him. Acts 4 and verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If anybody is ever going to be saved, it's because Jesus allows it to be so. God says, I'm your savior. Beside me, there is no other. Isaiah 43 and verse 11, Jesus's role is in the saving of human souls. You may try to teach your kids some responsibility. You may say, you made a mess, clean that up. Pick up after yourself. You don't have any maids or butlers. When you drop something, you pick it up. And as much as we try to do that, every one of us has made a mess of our lives. And we shout to ourselves and others in vain, clean that up, fix that. You can't do it. You never will. Try as you might. We've made a mess of ourselves. And the only way we're ever going to be saved is Jesus as the heavenly high priest cleans up the mess of all the world. 
1 John 2 and verse 2 says he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world because he's our savior. Have you thought about this? I would argue this is the case that somebody somewhere obeys the gospel every single day. I know we sometimes see it on social media and sometimes we don't. But somebody somewhere more than likely obeys the gospel of Jesus Christ every single day and every time. Somebody obeys the gospel. Jesus blots out all their sins, all their iniquities, and he saves them. He's never struggled to save anybody. He continually saves because that's what he is. He's our savior. He blots out our transgressions. Isaiah 43 and verse 25 for his own name's sake. He's our savior. Sometimes people think, well, I've done too much. I've gone too far. God can't possibly save me. But Jesus says I can. In fact, you won't be saved without it. Even the strongest Christian needs to hear this reality. The only reason why you and I will ever hear well done is because of what Jesus has done for us. Titus 3 and verse 5 says, not according to works of righteousness, which we have done. What does that mean? It means we need to be faithful to God, but no amount of Bible reading, no amount of church attendance, no amount of prayers in and of themselves, divorced from the reality of Jesus' sacrifice can save us. Not because of works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his own mercy, he saves us. Because Jesus is our Savior right now in this present moment. He's saving. On the cross, they mocked him. If you be the Son of God, save yourself and others. He saved the thief and they still didn't believe. All he has ever done is save and rescue people who couldn't do it for themselves otherwise. Now, here's number six. Jesus is interceding for us. Hebrews 7 and verse 25 says, Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him because he always lives to make intercession for us. What is Jesus doing right now? He is interceding for people, for his his people, for Christians as we pray to God. What does intercession mean? It means to speak up on behalf of somebody else to a higher authority. Jesus intercedes and speaks up for us to his father in heaven. Another way to say this, the Bible says Jesus is our mediator. There's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. First Timothy two and verse five. He's in heaven itself right now for us. Hebrews nine and verse twenty four. And he's interceding on our behalf. This doesn't mean that Jesus is sitting next to God, convincing him to love you or to like you. He already does. But it does mean in intercession, Jesus is saying things to God about you and about me if we're faithful Christians in a positive fashion. Who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. Who condemns? It's Christ who died, who was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Romans 8, 33 and 34. Maybe you don't feel like you pray good enough for yourself. You ever feel like that? I'm really not that good at prayer. But what if Jesus is helping? Robert McShane said, if I could hear Christ in the next room praying for me, I would not fear a million enemies. And yet distance makes no difference because he is praying for me. And Hebrews 725 says he is. He's interceding right now at the present moment on our behalf, speaking up for God, speaking up for us to God. Jesus is interceding for us right now. He's talking about you. And if you're a faithful Christian, he's saying the right things, good things. I know Jesus is not saying to God in heaven right now on our behalf. Make it harder on them. Be harder on them. Up the stakes on them. He's interceding on our behalf. Speaking up positively for us and rooting us on as we make our way to heaven in his steps. You know, in this age of do-it-yourself, you watch YouTube, you see somebody do something, and you say, well, I can do that. That's pretty easy until you do it, and then you say, I can't do that, right? 
We read the Gospels. We study Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I mean just a cursory reading through the Gospels. You kind of see Jesus live righteously and perfectly, almost effortlessly. And you say, well, I probably could do that. And then you try, and then you find out we're frail, we're, we're weak, we're human. He knows that we're human beings, and he intercedes on our behalf. You say, well, yeah, he probably does that for good Christians and for faithful people, but I'm sure Jesus is not interceding for me. I really haven't been that well behaved. I'm sort of stumbling through. I'm not one of these people that has their Christianity on cruise control. Surely he's not speaking up for me. The New Testament would say, especially for you. On the worst night of Peter's life, Jesus told him one thing. He said, Simon... Satan has desired to have you that it might sift you like wheat. Listen, Peter was about to do one of the worst things he had ever done. Deny association with Jesus. Question on that night, his worst night, what did Jesus do for him? Simon, Simon, Satan's desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I pray for you that your faith fail not. And when you're converted, Jesus didn't wait for him to be converted to pray for him. He was already praying. When you're converted, strengthen your brothers. Now, that temptation you've been struggling with, that sin you've been wrestling with, he's interceded. That devotion that you keep promising, that you are delaying to render to him, all of us in our human weakness, Jesus is not quitting on us. He's speaking up for us. He is not saying we don't have to render duty to God, but he is saying I want to make sure that they're equipped with everything that they need so that they can do it and be the very best that they can be. He speaks up for us when we can't speak up for ourselves. He and the spirit intercede on our behalf to God. This verse says nobody's going to barely make it to heaven. He's able to say to the uttermost, those that come to God by him, that means there's no squeaking by. He's interceding for us so that when we present ourselves before the throne of God in judgment, we will hear the words, well done. Peter says there'll be an abundant entrance open for us. Second Peter one and verse 11, because Jesus is going to provide it for us. We live in a place where you can represent yourself legally if a judge renders you legally competent to do so. And we might think we're pretty good at speaking up for ourselves. We think we're pretty good at defending ourselves. When you stand before the judgment bar of God, there won't be any need for that if you're a faithful Christian. He's going to do all the talking. You've confessed me on earth. I'll confess you before my father in heaven. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. What a comfort. Just like the prodigal son had his speech all carved out and he stood before his father and his father said, away with such a speech. You're welcomed home. So it will be when you and I get to heaven. But here's the question for those that have not rendered obedience to God, that have not obeyed his gospel. Who is going to speak up for you in that day? Who's going to say something for you before the throne of God? You haven't obeyed his gospel. You haven't submitted to him. Somebody says, well, it sounds like I need a spiritual co-signer. I need somebody to step in for me. Oh, you need something far more than that. A co-signer says, if this person can't pay the debt, I'll step in and pay on their behalf. But Jesus has said, I've realized they can't pay the debt and it's already been paid. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, you don't have that. And you don't have an answer to give to the king of kings. But Jesus is in heaven right now and he'll speak up for you now and in eternity. Now, here's the last one. Number seven. What is Jesus's heavenly ministry involved? He abides with his people. He's God with us in the flesh, Matthew 1:23, And then he says, lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age, Matthew 28 and verse 20. He's present with us right now. Somebody says, well, yeah, Jesus is om omnipresent. He's everywhere. No, that's not what the writer means here. It doesn't just mean Jesus is everywhere, like he's at the beach and he's present and non-Christians can't escape him, sort of like Psalm 139. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 is different. It's a special presence that we enjoy as the people of God, and therefore he can say, let your heart be free from the love of money. 
And be content with what things you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor abandon you so that we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I won't fear. What can man do to me? How can God be at the right hand of God? How can Jesus be there and here at the same time? Can he be in both places? The Bible says he is. Christ dwells in our hearts by faith, Ephesians 3.17. The word of Christ dwells in us richly, Colossians 3 and verse 16. He's everywhere, but especially with his people. And he's present, the Bible says, as a helper, as an assistant to come alongside us and help us to make it through life. If we just had this point about what Jesus is doing right now, and if every heart that claims Christ as Lord really believed it, there'd be nothing that could shake us. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue that rises up against you in judgment, you'll condemn. Isaiah 54, 17. If we really believed he was present, that he was with us and that he's not abandoning us, that he's going to stick it with us throughout this life and on into eternity. We would be bold. We'd be courageous. We know there's no condemnation to me. I'm in Christ. And though everybody in the world forsakes me, he's with me. One of the greatest realities that will be ours in heaven will be that we never as Christians stay alone. Not one day, your worst day, your best day. The greatest reality I believe that will be thrust upon us in that moment is Jesus was the ever abiding Savior. Some people have said this is the most powerful verse in all the New Testament because of the five no's, the five negatives in the Greek text where the writer says, I will never, ever, ever abandon you. We sometimes sing a song, How Firm a Foundation, which captures this in its entirety. The songwriter says, the soul that on Christ has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. And if you're a faithful Christian, if you're God's person, that promise is for you. I won't abandon you. I won't leave you to yourself. Right now, what is Jesus doing? He's sticking with his people and he's asking us to stick with him. Jesus has always existed in eternity, John 1 and verse 1. He came to be born as a baby in Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 1 tells us that. And he lived for 30 plus years, perfectly sinless life, died on our behalf, rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven. But the New Testament says his work isn't finished. He's seated at the right hand of God, but not still and inactive, but serving and administering as a monarch. Doing the most important work probably that he's ever done in addition to his death, serving in his heavenly cabinet as our high priest. You and I need Jesus to speak up for us. And if we're his people, he is doing that. And if we're not, he's saying, listen, everybody in the world can be a Christian. Everybody can enjoy this intercession, this salvation. And when you obey the gospel, turn him from sin and be immersed in water and rise to have your sins washed away and enjoy. When all your heart can do is burst forth in the song because I've saved you by my grace, even then I'll sing with you. And I'm not ashamed of our association. Phil's going to lead us in a song to encourage us. Maybe. Maybe you need to obey the gospel. Hebrews 5 says he's still saving people right now. His blood is as powerful today as it was when the Roman soldier pierced him in the side in John 19 and verse 34. And he'll save you just as he always has. If we can pray with you or pray for you, Jesus is interceding and we would love to do the same. If this is your invitation, if we can help you, come now as together we stand and as we sing.